You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is the beginning of the month, a whole new month, October. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) We are in October, and that means we get to search the scriptures with Pastor Askins today for the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. In studio with us, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. And uh, the pastor, we get to study God's word with every month for searching the scriptures. Pastor Askins, welcome to the coffee hour. Thank you. It's great to be back again. So we are continuing in this series, usually on the first Friday of the month, sometimes second Friday. just depends on (laughs) when we can get in studio. So um, searching the scriptures this month, what's the, the theme that we're digging into for searching the scriptures? So the theme we're digging into is the third article, continuing this confession of the Holy Spirit and his work in the world through the church. And the portion we were going we are going to be going through today is the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. And while we're here talking about this, I want to take a moment to refresh your memories as to the the explanation of this portion of the creed. So Luther asked, what does this mean? We say, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. An amazing confession, once again, that I believe, that I cannot believe, right? But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. And we're going to dig more into that, but I want to make sure we have that at the top of our minds as we prepare to dive into the study. All right. Shall we? Question one? Let's do it. Okay. Read Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. What is the rock upon which Christ will build his church? How does that relate to the keys of the kingdom? And to whom does Christ give these keys? I just like to stack up the questions. So <laughs> we're digging into here in this first question, what is the church and how does the church, where does the church come from? How does the church proclaim who Christ is? So let's begin here with this passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So that's our text. Uh, The first question is, what is the rock upon which Christ will build his church? Now, the Roman Catholic Church takes this passage as one of the foundational texts for the papacy and the authority of the papacy. They claim that because Jesus says, you are Peter, Jesus is making a play on Peter's name. As many of you are probably familiar with, Peter means rock. And Jesus says, you are the rock upon which I will build this church. And so the Roman Catholic Church says, well, Peter was the first bishop of Rome. 
Rome. He is the rock upon which we're founded. So the papacy is foundational to them and to their confession of the church. However, if we look at the text, this is not actually what it refers to here. Jesus is not saying he built his church upon Peter. Christ would never build his church upon a man, right? Uh, He actually builds it upon the confession that Peter makes. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, if you look at the words behind this, the Greek words, he actually, the play he makes on the words is a reference Petra, not Petros. Petros is the, the masculine form. He says Petra, the feminine form, referring to the confession that Peter makes. And then when he later says, um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is one of our unfortunate problems in English. This is my inner editor coming out here. Uh, this is where all of us should be more like Texans and use y'all. Jesus is actually using the plural form here. So he's not saying you individually, Peter. He is saying y'all, as in the disciples there gathered upon, I will give y'all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this is a reference to giving this to the church. So the first question here, the rock upon which Christ builds his church is the confession of Christ. Now, there's a bunch more here related to this idea of the rock upon which the church uh, is founded. Christ will also speak of himself as the stone. For instance, in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 11, he talks about being the cornerstone that is rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's a reference to Jesus Christ himself. He is the cornerstone. Also, a fantastic passage in Ephesians that we've been hearing about recently in chapel. Um, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is the preaching of the word of God, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, So the stone upon which the church is founded is Jesus Christ and the confession of him as the son of God. Okay, So that's the, the stone. The next question is, what are the keys of the kingdom and to whom does Christ give these keys? Well, the keys of the kingdom uh, are those things that open and close heaven, right? We have keys to get into our house, to lock the door, to unlock the door, right? So also here we talk about the keys of the kingdom as those things that open and close heaven, right? We have also in our small catechism an explanation of this when we ask, what is the office of the keys? It is that special authority Christ gives to his church on earth to forgive sins of of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from those who do not repent. So Christ actually bestows this authority upon his church, and the church exercises this authority through her called pastors, publicly through the office of the ministry. So when we hear our pastor declare on Sunday morning, I forgive you your sins, we can actually hear this as though God himself is saying this, right? If you forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or your sins are forgiven. So that's the first question, and it is this confession of Christ and his work that is the foundation of the church. So we go from the confession of Peter now to question two, which brings us to the Acts of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. Acts 2, what happened when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost? How did the Holy Spirit add 3,000 souls to the church that day in Acts 2.41? And what did these new Christians do immediately afterward, Acts 2.42? So we should probably read all of Acts chapter 2, but I think that would take up too much time. <laughs> we'll try and do a quick summary. <laughs> this is, in some sense, uh, the birth of the church, the, whole, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, through the apostles. So Jesus has ascended into heaven. He sends them off to Jerusalem and tells them to wait for the gift that will be given them. And they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There's a loud rushing wind, divided tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit uh, comes on the disciples and they begin to, to preach. 
And of course, the key aspect of this is that they are speaking in all sorts of different tongues that they didn't previously know, right? It is an undoing. One of my favorite Bible stories has always the story of Babel, right? Mm -hmm. Where God comes down and confuses the language of the people and they don't know how to talk to each other. And Could you imagine, you know, you could talk to your neighbor one day and the next day you can't, right? So he confuses the language of the people. This story here in Acts is the undoing of Babel. Now the proclamation of the gospel goes forth in every language and every tongue, right? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontians, Asians, the whole uh, gamut of them hear the proclamation of the word in their own language. So, and this is exactly what happens then. Peter stands up and he preaches from the Old Testament and he preaches what Jesus taught them from the Old Testament as God promised would happen when the Holy Spirit came and recalled to their remembrance everything that Jesus taught them. And then uh, after this wonderful sermon, At the end of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people received his word, were baptized, and were added to the church that day. And then 242, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So that's kind of a quick summary of what happens on Pentecost. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about these specific questions. How does the Holy Spirit add 3,000 souls? Well, once again, through the preaching of his word, through the preaching of his word through Peter, uh, these people here, they were convicted of their sins, they repented of their sins, they received this word, and then they were uh, brought into the church through the waters of holy baptism. Okay, And then from that, what do they do immediately afterwards? Well, they immediately join in the worship of the church. And we have this wonderful summary, chapter 2, verse 42, of how the church gathers around our Lord's gifts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, The apostles' teaching is not really the apostles' teaching, right? It is actually the teaching that they have received from Jesus Christ, and it's, in this context here, teaching from the Old Testament, which is exactly what Peter has just done. Earlier in John chapter 14, verse 26, I believe it is, I could be wrong on the reference on the verse there, but uh, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and recall to the remembrance of the apostles everything that Jesus taught them, right? And we are seeing an example of this as they sit here and teach what Jesus taught them. This is the Holy Spirit working through them. And then eventually they will write this down into what we have now in the New Testament. This is what they gather around. Now, when we as the church... Now, in 2021, we're still in 21, right? What do we gather around? We still gather around this same teaching of the apostles, right? Hence, as we were talking earlier, Christ remains the foundation of our church. Why? Because we gather around the preaching and the proclamation of his word. And this results in a couple of other things. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, we're going to talk more about the fellowship in a following question, so I'm not going to dig too deep on that. But we can talk, the breaking of the bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And of course, prayers uh, are what the church does in response to the gifts they have received from our Lord. So this continues, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, continues to be our pattern of worship, even here and now, as we receive our Lord's gifts. We have a lot more to discuss. However, before we get to question three, we are going to take a break. We are discussing Searching the Scriptures, the October edition, the Holy Christian Church, the Communion of Saints on the Coffee Hour. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. 
and at Concordia University. It's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures with Pastor Askins today. Pastor, anything else on Acts chapter 2 before we go on to question 3? Let's go on to question 3. All right. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 2. And Ephesians 1, 1 to 2. And uh, what does Paul call the people who belong to the churches to whom he was writing? Why is this interesting, especially when he writes to the congregations in Corinth, see 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 2? So I'm, I'm just going to read the first one, 1 Corinthians 1, and uh, it, it kind of is this very similar in the other passages. So Paul writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace. The interesting thing, and he does the same thing in 2 Corinthians, he does the same thing in Ephesians, is he calls these people saints. Now, how do we normally think of saints? What's a saint, right? Well, if we dig into this word saint or sanctified, that's also there in verse 2, we get to the word, the Latin word sanctus, or which we have in English is holy, right? People who are holy, who are set apart, who have, who have uh, a holy life. Well, if you look at the uh, passage in Corinthians, and you look through, for instance, in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll realize that's not doesn't describe the people in Corinth very well. They were known for their sexual immorality and just general, really uh, horrible lifestyle that they lived in some ways. And yet, what does Paul do? He calls them Saints. He calls them holy ones. What do you mean by this? Well, let's talk about this word saint a little bit more. We usually have a couple of different ways of thinking about saints. You have the Roman Catholic version, which usually involves some sort of canonization. They do some miracles. They receive a formal title. The Roman Catholics pray to the saints for intercession in some fashion or another, right? So that there's that one sense of saint. Sometimes there's a secular sense of saint when we think of a person who has a particularly difficult spouse or child, and we might say, wow, that person's such a saint, right, for putting up with that difficult person. But saint for us uh, as Lutherans, as, as we look at what the scriptures say, it's a little bit different. It is those who have been declared righteous and sanctified, that is made righteous and holy, set apart in Christ Jesus. And the fascinating thing is that is exactly what God calls us, the holy ones, in spite of our of, of our continuing struggle with sin, right? This is uh, Luther's wonderful insight that we are both saints and sinners, that we are declared holy and righteous before God, even as we continue to struggle with our sinful flesh and mortify the sinful flesh by repenting of our sin daily and seeking to live a godly life. But this is through the Holy Spirit, we are made holy, uh, set apart for his work. So that's really what that, that question is getting to, that we are the communion of saints, the fellowship of those who are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. We are made so by virtue of our participation in the holy things, which I think we'll get to in the next question. All right. Shall we move on? Let's do it. 
Question four. Read Acts 2.42 again. The Greek word for fellowship used in this passage is also translated by the ESV as communion or participation. Read 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. With whom does the church have fellowship or communion? And read, ver- read 1 Corinthians 10.14 to 17. How does the Holy Spirit create fellowship or participation among you? Okay, let's talk about this wonderful word, fellowship or uh, communion. So the passage again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, right? So what is this word fellowship? What does this mean? Well, the Greek word behind this, maybe you've heard this before, is koinonia, and it can be translated in a number of different ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, it's actually translated as, uh, I believe it's participation or no fellowship there and then in first corinthians chapter 10 it's actually uh, a participation right a communion a unity that we have okay i was signing it sorry (laughs) (laughs) i see some hands going on over here sorry (laughs) my brain thinks in sign language sometimes So, so we have this unity. Andy was showing me the sign language where we have these two interlocking fingers, kind of like a chain. There we are. He threw me for a loop there. Right. So we are united, right? <clears throat> Brought together. Okay. So where does this take place? Where do we see this? Well, the first thing we need to note is with whom does the church have fellowship? First and foremost is Christ. <clears throat> By virtue of our being declared righteous and being made sancti- sanctified holy in his sight, we are called into a new relationship with him. And the New Testament has a number of different ways of describing what this fellowship, what this union with him is. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, St. Paul talks about Jesus being the head. We are his body, right? Obviously, you have a rather intimate relationship with your head. Your body is kind of integral to those two being united, right? Most of the time. Uh, Most of the time, yeah. (laughs) Belong together. I suppose when they're separated, that's the problem, right? Uh, He is the head. We are the body. We take all of our sustenance, nutrition, direction. Everything comes from the head and directs uh, our life together as the body of Christ. Other imagery that St. Paul also uses is the children of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. This is from Romans chapter 8. We are united to him so that we become children of God by virtue of his death and resurrection, and then we are also fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, right? The sons of God with Christ Jesus. Other places, Jesus refers to his disciples, and I think we can also say by extension to those who receive their teaching as his friends, not servants, but friends, because we now have this new relationship with Christ Jesus. So first and foremost, this notion of fellowship, of participation, of communion is a fellowship, participation, and communion with Jesus Christ himself. Now, this also has a consequence for our relationship with those in the body of Christ. And so this is the second point. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, we now have a fellowship with one another, a participation with one another in the body of Christ. And I think it's important that we read this passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Okay, so because we are united as a body in Christ Jesus, we are also united to one another, right? If I'm a finger and somebody else is a toe, we're all united by virtue of our connection to the head, right? So also here in the body of Christ, by virtue of our common confession and and participation in salvation in Jesus Christ, we are united to one another. And this also informs then why we practice close communion, not simply with those who believe this is the true body and blood of Christ, but also who share the same confession of faith about the Word of God that we share. It's not simply a function of what we believe about communion, but that we share together the whole teaching of the Word of God. Of course, there's much more that could be said there, but we're going to have to move on because I know we're running behind. (laughs) This all happens finally by participation in the holy things, right? Holy things are those things that are set apart, set aside. That is the Lord's Supper, baptism, the preaching of God's Word. These are holy things set aside, and by our participation in them, Christ also makes us holy and and sets us apart to be his children. All right, question five. Let's go. Read 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Through what means does the Holy Spirit create and sustain faith among God's people. Okay, we actually kind of did this all in reverse. I noticed this after I was, as I was preparing the, the answers. I was like, well, I wrote, did this whole question backwards. We began with the Lord's Supper when we should have began with the Word of God and baptism. But here we are. How does the Holy Spirit create and sustain faith? Let's actually begin with the Word of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as we were discussing again uh, in the previous question, our participation in the holy things is what makes us holy, sets us apart for God's word. And this begins the foundation for both the Lord's Supper and baptism is, of course, the word of God. Without the word of God, it's just plain bread. It's just plain wine. Without the word of God, it's just water, not a baptism. The word of God sits uh, is what makes both of these operative and wonderful gifts that make us holy and set us apart. And so also here, we gather regularly around the preaching of God's word, it's regularly in our lives, because through this means, the Holy Spirit creates and sustains faith among his people. Uh, And so we participate in this word of God. Why? Well, it's not simply words on paper, but it is, in fact, the very word of God that is active, as he says in Hebrews chapter 4, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? But it's also performative. What God says, it also accomplishes. What? Right? God says, uh, let there be light. Guess what? Boom. There's light. So also God says, you are my forgiven child. Guess what? You are his forgiven child. And so where we participate and hear this word, it is also active uh, among us. And then finally, we have the expression of this word of God in baptism uh, from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I have to say, I memorized that originally in the NIV, so I actually have to read this in the ESV <laughs> because my tongue doesn't uh, always do it ESV style. Here in baptism, of course, through the word and water placed upon us, he brings us into his family, makes us his children. As we talked about at the very beginning, 3,000 people were brought into the church. How? Through the through baptism. Through hearing the preaching of God's word, repenting, and then being baptized, they're brought into the church. So also here continues for us today. Through baptism, through this, this holy gift, he brings us in 
and makes us his own children and continues to sustain us as we go on. And here you have this wonderful metaphors here that St. Paul uses of the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This word regenerate is literally to born again, to Genesis again, to be born anew. And then renewal is this ongoing spiritual renewal that we have. It's not just a one and done gift, but a gift that continues to bring us wholeness and unity with God. So this is how our Lord, through these gifts, through these means of grace, as we call them, continues to sustain and keep faith among his people. All right. We got through it all, and we actually have a minute left. So, no way! Yeah. Let's put a nice bow on this. What is the the, the big overarching thing? People aren't going to know what to do with I, that I because know. we actually have a conclusion here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. So the great overarching conclusion here is that we confess that our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work in the church through the means of grace, that despite all odds, you know, we look at the church, she's full of sinners, you're full of uh, sinful pastors. She even struggles against error and false teaching, right? In spite of this, we continue to confess what the Holy Spirit does through the church among among his people through these means of grace. And uh, we're actually going to continue this next month with the forgiveness of sins. What is he doing in this church? He is precisely forgiving our sins, forgiving the sins of his people, and keeping them holy and sanctified before God, which leads us right into next month's discussion. Amen. Amen. We can't start early on that, can we? <laughs> Well, I think you've given us a little bit of a sneak preview there. (laughs) The Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for The Lutheran Witness. Thank you so much, Pastor Askins, for for helping us study God's Word today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.